If you have your Bibles, uh, turn to Romans chapter 11. And we're going to continue our study in Romans, uh, the book of Romans, and we're going to look in a few minutes and beginning in verse 17. Uh, it's being said about yo- the young adult culture. Oh, yes, the children can be dismissed for Children's Church. Thanks, Denise. It's being said about the young adult culture that, that we live in today that they're living in an entitlement age. It seems that as we're viewing young people reach young adulthood, they're living with this expectation that certain things are a must, whether they are material or emotional. We didn't arrive there overnight. It didn't happen with the flip of a calendar. In fact, I I think where we are today as a culture and and where they are as a culture um, and as a generational group is largely a result of what we have allowed them to do. We're guilty of fostering this kind of entitlement behavior. We have hovered over our children, you know, the helicopter parenting, trying to remove all the consequences of all the choices of all the things that they do and not allowing them to express and and live in that. And, And we've given everyone a trophy just for showing up. Some of you are like, hey, preach it, right? But we've overcorrected. And there's a generation of young people, young adults, that are reaching the point where they're trying to make decisions for themselves and, and, and trying to live and move and breathe in a world where they're saying, I expect more and more and more. Now, before we go crazy and start throwing every young person under the bus, uh, let's have a measured response and understand that not every person is living this way, but culturally it seems Like what is driving society today is this incessant need for more. Entitlement can create in a person a sense of arrogance and pride. Believing that certain expectations are met because the person deserves it. I need, not just want, because it is due to me. And while that's a dangerous place for a culture to be, it's an even more dangerous place to be in the spiritual realm. Our passage this morning confronts us with the dangers of feeling arrogant as it concerns the spiritual life. Isn't that a crazy thought? That you can be spiritually arrogant that you can have feelings of spiritual entitlement. I mean, everything that we are in Christ calls us to selfless love, servanthood attitudes. And yet at times we can get caught up in this chaos of feeling spiritually entitled to the blessings that God wants to give. Paul challenges us this morning and offers a corrective to entitlement thinking when it comes to the blessing 
of knowing God through the person of his son, Jesus. Now, this passage, while as a warning, is also a message of grace as we are called to consider our standing in the presence of God. Paul's offering a corrective to spiritual arrogance. And what he does is he's saying, okay, this is what you need to avoid. But as you avoid this, know these things to be true. And these things to be true are how we can stand in God's presence. What is that basis? Now, one of the most dangerous sins that God deals with in the world today is that of pride and arrogance. It is pride that keeps people from seeing their true need for help. And even if they see their true need, it keeps them from asking for that help. How many times have you seen a small child struggling to their wits end trying to do something? And maybe as a parent, you're just kind of standing back and watching and you're just like, if you just ask, I'd be glad to help you. And they're clamoring and grasping and groaning and complaining and all these things. Where does that attitude come from? It comes from the attitude of pride that says, I can do it myself. Spiritual pride is an insidious enemy that we always need to continually guard ourselves from. It's the kind of pride, the kind of sin that the Pharisees, the religious leaders in the days of Jesus had fallen into. It's the kind of pride that the Pharisees felt that they were a notch higher than everyone else and better standing because they were, thought they were closer to God. And it was one of the main sins that Jesus confronted as he confronted this evil behavior. In fact, to confront such pride, Jesus told a parable in Luke 18 about a Pharisee and a publican who went into God's house to pray. If you're not familiar with the story, I I would encourage you to read in Luke 18, verses 9 through 14, this parable. But the, the parable in short is that the publican stayed on the outside and felt like he did not deserve to be in God's presence. He was struggling to even comprehend how a God of holiness and justice could hear his prayers because he knew he was a sinner. But the Pharisee had walked in and proudly boasted as he prayed to God. And the Pharisee boasted in his prayer, thank God I'm not like that man. We often read that parable, and you know what the irony is when you read that parable? Often we think, thank God I'm not like the Pharisee. You know, pride can be such a, such a thought that creeps in out of nowhere. In fact, I was reading a story um, this week in the 1800s. Uh, there was a pastor that was ingratiating himself to his community. And he was struggling with the sin of pride and trying to overcome that sin of pride. And so he went to one of the leaders in the church and, and he said, hey, I, I'm real, I really don't want to be overwhelmed and over, overcome with thoughts of pride and arrogance. 
can you give me some help on how to try to overcome that? And, and this guy said, I want you to go out into all the streets with like a sandwich board on that just says, and don't say anything, and just says, Jesus is the Savior of the world, and walk through the streets. And the man did this, and he walked through the streets, and when he came back in at the end of his time, his first thought was, I must be the only man that would do something like that. Pride just sneaks up on you out of nowhere. And what we have before us today is a corrective, a spiritual corrective to remind ourselves why we are where we are so that we do not have these thoughts of feeling arrogant and prideful and entitled in our spiritual life. This passage before us today comes from the pen of Pastor Paul, like the shepherd the man who preached the gospel and wrote letters to churches to encourage them and to, to encourage the, the people of God to be together and unified. It, it's this pastor's heart that Paul conveys in this passage as he's thinking about the groups that exist in the family of God and the arrogance that can exist. And Paul is saying, listen, for you Gentiles, please be careful that you don't grow arrogant as you look around you. And what would they have seen? They, they would have seen people that were a part of the Old Testament, the Jewish people, Israel, that had tripped over Christ. And the thought might be that these people, Israel, are inferior now. And Paul says, no. Understand where you came from and what God is doing. And don't ever feel like you're more superior. In fact, we're going to see in this passage... God's sovereign love on our behalf as He has revealed His kindness through the cross of our Savior. Our salvation has and always will be the gift of our benevolent Heavenly Father. It's a gift. You are where you are, not just in this building, but you are where you are spiritually because God saw your need and gave you a gift. And everything the scriptures say about you before the gift was giving says that you don't deserve the gift. And yet the God of all creation says, here it is. Your standing with him is based on his benevolent love towards you. Church, I pray you never forget that. I pray you wake up every day with new mercies that are renewed, praising God. For his indescribable gift. So let's read the text and, and, and think through what Paul is saying here. I'm reading in Romans chapter 11. I'm going to be reading in verses 17 through 24. But if some of the branches were broken off and you being a wild olive were grafted in among them and became partaker with them of the rich root of the olive tree... Do not be arrogant towards the branches, but if you are arrogant, remember that it is not you who supports the root, but the root supports you. You will say then, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. Quite right. They were broken off for their unbelief, but you stand by your faith. Do not be conceited, but fear. 
For if God did not spare the natural branches, he will not spare you either. Behold then the kindness and severity of God. To those who fell, severity, but to you, God's kindness. If you continue in his kindness, otherwise you also will be cut off. And they also, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in, for God is able to graft them in again. For if you were cut off from what is by nature a wild olive tree and were grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these who are the natural branches be grafted into their own olive tree? Can I just confess, this was a wonderfully challenging passage to prepare for. How many of you completely understand what Paul is saying here? I mean, I read these verses, I read them again, and I read them a third time, and I read them a fourth time, and I'm laboring in prayer over the text and thinking, oh my, what marvelous truth. We talked last week about how God's ways are certainly higher than ours, and this is full evidence of it. But before we study the text, we need to make a a distinction as to what Paul was talking about in this object lesson. This whole passage about warning is based on an object lesson. It's based on a picture. You know, if Paul was with Rome, or in the church in Rome, and he sat down with them to teach them, he would have pulled out an olive tree. He would have had it with him, or or he would have taken the the church out into the gardens where where olives would grow, and, and he would point their attention to this. But he uses this analogy, a picture that would have been fresh in their minds in this first century culture, and they would have understood what he meant about this olive tree and the branches and the root and the grafting in and the wild olive tree and all of that. But when we read it, the thought could be, what are you talking about, Paul? I mean, what does this all mean? Because this is not an experience that we, we always understand. I mean, how many of you have grafted in olive branches before? Maybe some of you that have a, a huge green thumb have grafted in branches from one tree to the next. But this is not normal practice for us. But before we get into the text, the, the, what we need to understand about this object lesson is that if we misunderstand the picture... We could be led to some serious errors in our theology and possibly serious danger in our spiritual life. Why do I say that? Well, I read in this passage, and I don't know, I trust you were listening, but as we were reading, I don't know if when we came across in um, verse 21, a phrase like, he will not spare you either, Or verse 22, otherwise you will be cut off. I don't know if you had maybe this feeling of trepidation and fear of, uh uh-oh, what are you talking about? Are you with me this morning? Okay, all right, good. We need to understand the picture. What do I mean by that? The, the The distinction that we need to understand this morning is that God is not talking about individuals. He's talking about groups of people. And that is key to the understanding of the warnings that are in the passage. God is talking about 
groups of people. And we know this because throughout verses 17 through 24, we find this word you. And the you is singular. It's not you plural like all of you. It's you as a group. And the you that Paul is referring to, and we made this shift last week. In fact, if you were with us last week, we read in in Romans 11, verse 13, but I am speaking to you who are Gentiles. And so that's the group that Paul is speaking to. He's He's speaking to the people in the church in Rome that are like us. The group. And he gives a warning. And the you of the Gentiles is contrasted with the they that is a reference to the people of Israel. This is important because if you read it as you as the individual, then what is the potential possibility? That if you fall short, you personally will be cut off. Now let me ask you a question. Does God lose anyone that comes to him for salvation? No, not ever. The scriptures are emphatic that we are eternally secure in him. That if you come by faith, believing in what Jesus Christ has done for you on the cross of Christ, you are secure forever in God's presence. That there is nothing that you can do or say or think that would separate you from God's love. That's how Romans 8 ended. There's nothing that would separate God's love from you. You will not be cut off, separated, or lose your salvation. But there is a warning here to a group. That if the group is arrogant, God can set them aside. And that's God's prerogative. So where do we get this? We'll look at verse 17. But if some of the branches were broken off... And you being a wild olive were grafted in among them and became partaker with them of the rich root of the olive tree. Do not be arrogant towards the branches, the branches that were broken off. But if you are arrogant, remember that it is not you who supports the root, but the root supports you. So we're going to back up just one verse to verse 16 where we ended last week when Paul gave the the picture of the, the dough and the lump. He also says, And if the root is holy, the branches are too. Now, the olive tree in Scripture was a picture of the nation of Israel. Two specific passages, one found in Jeremiah chapter 11, verses 16 and 17, says this, The Lord called your name a green olive tree, beautiful in fruit and form. With the noise of a great tumult, he has kindled fire on it, And its branches are worthless. The Lord of hosts who planted you has pronounced evil against you because of evil of the house of Israel and of the house of Judah, which they have done to provoke me by offering up sacrifices to Baal. The olive tree is a picture of Israel. Hosea 14 verses 4 through 6. The prophet Hosea says this about Israel being the olive tree. I will heal their apostasy. I will love them freely, for my anger has turned away from them. I will be like the dew to Israel. He will blossom like the lily. He will take root like the cedars of Lebanon. His shoots will sprout, and his beauty will be like the olive tree. 
and his fragrance like the cedars of Lebanon. Those who live in the shadow will again rise again, and they will blossom like the vine. His renown will be like the wine of Lebanon. So here's the thing. We talked about one misconception about the groups. Like Paul's talking about groups of people, not individuals. But there's something else that we need to see here. Branches were broken off and branches were grafted in. And another important thing we need to see in this passage is nowhere does Paul teach that the branches that were grafted in, which are Gentiles, now belong to Israel. The church has not replaced Israel in God's plan. In fact, that's been Paul's overarching thought in Romans 9, 10, and 11. These people that have tripped over Christ, the people that Paul has been praying for and begging and pleading with to find life in the Messiah. Paul is saying that now God is going to return to these people. And as we're going to see next week, all of Israel will be saved. True Israel will find life in their Messiah. But the church has not replaced Israel. That is a very key distinction that we all need to understand. Because when you're reading the pages of the Old Testament and the promises that God has given Israel, and you're thinking about, wow, this is amazing. They're going to have a land. They're going to be a great nation. You might think, Well, maybe that's for us. I mean, they rejected, but the church is the one that's believing. But here's the thing. They may have rejected and stumbled. All God has done is put them on the shelf. He's working through us, the church today, but he's going to go back to the shelf at the end of time and take Israel off the shelf and put them front and center in his plan of redemption. And he's going to restore these people. And when they come to the full realization of their salvation in Jesus Christ, all of true Israel will sing God's praises as they remember his faithful love because the promises he made thousands of years ago are finding their reality in their time. And isn't it good for us to know that God's promises are not contingent on our behavior? That when God says something, when he promises something, he is going to keep his word towards his people. It's not for us to think that we are better off and better standing. Now, sure, We're talking about corporate here. Big picture, Israel, Gentile. Sure, the individuals in Israel today that are holding on to their Judaism but have not trusted in Christ, they are lost. They are dead in their sins. And unless they find life in the Messiah, they will be separated from God forever. But God keeps his promises to his people as a whole and says that there will always be a remnant. There will always be a group of people in Israel that will find life in me. And he keeps his word. And so when Paul says, but if some of the branches were broken off, the unbelieving branches, Israel, were broken off, and you being a wild olive. How about that title, right? You're a wild olive. I don't know if you ever thought about yourself in that way, but you're a wild olive. 
God broke you off of the wild olive tree and he grafted you in. You know what's interesting about the analogy? And I've never done this, but in my reading about this, it was fascinating. If you're going to graft something in, you're usually grafting the mature into the wild. Here, God grafts the wild into the mature. He kind of turns the expectation upside down. He doesn't send the mature established to establish the wild. He brings in the wild and establishes them within his family. And that's what God has done as the gospel has been proclaimed to people like us. And why did God do this? Well, we talked about this last week. Why did God preach the gospel to Gentiles? Well, one of the motivations was so that the Jewish people that had rejected him would become jealous. And as God is using the church today, Israel is seeing the church and saying, man, I want what they have. We should be living that way. We talked about this last week. You should be living in such a way as a Christian that people are attracted to the person of Jesus Christ. Not the ho-hum, boo-hoo, woe is me, everything's a problem, complain, complain, complain kind of attitude that exists. That we live with purpose knowing that we are called to a higher plane and God is on the throne. Now here Paul explains the occurrence of this addition of the Gentiles and explains that some of the branches were broken off the olive tree. These dead branches are the Jews and Israel in their unbelief. But then God has brought in the wild Gentile branch and grafted them in. These branches that are grafted in are not just a part of the tree. That's not the main emphasis what do we see in the, at the end of verse 17? They are able to partake with them of the rich root. What's the rich root? That's another key distinction in this text. The rich root is the promise that God gave to the beginning of the olive tree. Who's the beginning of the olive tree? Well, in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, you have the beginning of the rich olive tree. And his name is Abraham. And God made a promise, a covenant with Abraham. And when he called this man Abraham, who was known at the time as Abram, out of his foreign land, and God visited him in his foreign land, he says, Abe, I'm going to be your God. And you and your people are going to be my people. And as you trust me, I'm going to send you a place where I will tell you you will go. And I will give you a land, and I will make your descendants outnumber the stars of the sky and the sands on the seashore, and I will use you to bless all the people of the earth. Before the commandments of Moses were given, before the nation of Israel existed, God made a promise to this man, Abraham, that contained us. If you read in Genesis 12, the last promise of the covenant that God made to Abraham is all the nations of the world will be blessed through you. 
Well, who's all the nations of the world? It's us. And now, as Paul is explaining to the church in Rome about the standing of the Jewish people and now the Gentile people, he's helping us to see that God brought in the Gentiles in his own timing by his grace so that we can partake in the rich root of the promises that God gave Abraham. Now, what should that cause in us? Well, it shouldn't cause in us a feeling of arrogance. Do not be arrogant towards the branches, but if you are arrogant, remember that it is not you who supports the root, but the root supports you. What Paul is saying is, if you're a Gentile Christian and you're looking at the Jewish people as a whole and saying, oh my gosh, they're terrible. They missed it. How dare them? And think, oh my, we are so blessed. We have received such goodness and grace. And we start looking around thinking that we're far superior than them. Paul is saying, watch it. Because if God can tear off the branches of them, he can tear off the branches of you. And we're not talking about individuals. We're talking collectively. And why is this a big deal? Because the branches partake in the root. We are a part of Abraham's family, but we are not Israel. Also, it's only through the root that the branches can receive the nourishment. And what's the nourishment of the soil? Well, that's God and his faithful love. And as God made this promise to Abraham and planted him in the ground, God nourished him and nourished his son Isaac and nourished his son Jacob and nourished all of the children of Jacob and the nation of Israel. And he nourishes those who are grafted in as well. The branches cannot find nourishment in any other way than being attached to the root. That's why like we, we planted a new tree in front of our house this year. Our old tree, my wife's favorite tree, died. I had to cut it down. I was a lumberjack for a day. And I planted this new tree. And thankfully, I have a guy I can call and say, hey, what do I do? I'm not someone that, that's good at this. But if the tree in a dry season, was looking a little wilty. I don't sit there with the hose and and spray the leaves and the branches to nourish it. What did I do? I took the hose and the nozzle and I shoved it in the ground and I just turned it on for a good long time. Why? Because the roots are what needs the nourishment so that the branches can survive. The branches were brought in. Do you see that? Too? The wild branches were brought in. Somebody had to bring the branches in. All glory for our salvation must go to God, for it is He and He alone that brought us in. Those wild branches weren't on the wild tree thinking, ah, boy, it'd be really good to be over there. No, someone had to go and, and take those branches off to put them and graft them in. Now, this feeling I'm better off than you was, and to some degree today, prevalent in the church in Rome and today. The church, thinking that they are superior than Israel and boasted over their demise, has been prevalent in church history. Tragically, the church often has viewed themselves as superior. In fact, in the first crusade, 
the European church that was making their way to the, the Holy Lands, to claim the Holy Lands from the Muslim nations that were in charge and in control. On their way, the person in charge of the first crusade said this about the Jews. They are but infidels and must be destroyed completely. And when he entered Jerusalem, a war fought in the name of Christ. They went into Jerusalem and they destroyed the synagogues that were for the Jewish people. Martin Luther, who was the main proponent of the Protestant Reformation, he's the guy that wrote the document to break away from the Catholic Church. He's the father of Protestant evangelical church today. Later in his life, he was deeply anti-Semitic. And he wrote a document explaining his views that all Jewish people are worthless. All throughout Israel's history, they have been at the hands of crusades against them. In fact, they're called pogroms. In Russia in the 1800s, under the establishment of the Russian Orthodox Church, Jews, through massacres, were destroyed or run out of their country. And we know that just 70, 80 years ago, the nation of Germany, under the backdrop of the German church, sought to eradicate the Jewish people. This feeling of superiority over the Jews has existed corporately and individually over the church's history. It's a tragic scar. And Paul says any such thinking is terrible in the sight of God. Verses 19 and 20. You will say then branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. Quite right. They were broken off in their unbelief, but you stand by your faith. Do not be conceited, but fear. Yes, branches were broken off so that you could be grafted in. And that was a part of God's plan, but you shouldn't boast in the breaking off so that you could be brought in. Listen, it was unbelief that caused their breaking off. What is Paul saying? The only reason you're brought in and grafted in is by faith. Like Abraham, the righteous are made that way by faith. Paul squashes the thought of superiority by declaring the only reason we are where we are is because we simply believed God. We didn't bring anything into the relationship except believing in what he has done. None of us can be grafted into this great tree and say, I deserve to be here. All of us can say with great certainty, the only reason I'm here is because I believed in what God has done for me. The safeguard for our hearts to avoid spiritual arrogance is found at the end of verse 20. Do not be conceited, but fear. The word conceited means high and lofty. Listen, if you're a person that loves Jesus and you walk around with your nose way up in the air thinking you're better off than the unbelievers around you, you're in danger. That's not the heart that God is cultivating in people that love him and fear him. We are to shed conceit. What are we to do? Fear. Now the question is, 
What kind of fear? What do we fear? Sometimes fear is used in the scriptures to explain a reverential awe of God, like falling on our knees. He's better than us, bigger than us, greater than us. He's God, we're not, we fear him. But I don't think that's what Paul is saying here. I think he's talking about real fear. What is the real fear? That if the people of God now, the Gentiles, largely walk around acting like that they're better off than the Jewish people, what is going to stop God from doing to the Gentiles that he did to the Jewish people? We're talking about big picture. Branches broken off, branches brought in. This is a genuine fear of judgment. Verse 21, for if God did not spare the natural branches, he will not spare you either. If Gentiles went on acting like they were superior, then the danger is God would set them aside as well. And if God chose to do so, that's his sovereign choice. He can do it. He did it before. Now verses 22 and 24 say this, Behold then the kindness and severity of God. To those who fell, severity, but to you, God's kindness, if you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you will also be cut off. That's a strange coin, right? Two sides of the same coin. God's kindness, God's severity. Same God. One side, his severity. I don't want to be on the side of God's severity. I really don't. He is completely righteous and holy to do what he wishes, and his wrath against sin is pure I don't want to be on the side of judgment. I want to be on the side of God's kindness. What does Paul say? To those who fell, tripped over Christ, it was severity. But to you, God's kindness, if you continue in his kindness, otherwise you're cut off. What is the kindness of God? It is the person of Jesus Christ. We didn't trip over the Messiah. We believed by faith in what God has kindly done for us. Verse 23, we read, And they also, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in. There's hope. They're broken off, but there's hope. And if they, Israel, do not continue in their unbelief, if they come to the point of believing, God's not going to say, sorry, you missed it. He's going to say, yes, come back. Yes, I'm going to bring you back in. For God is able to graft them in again. If God is not done with the people of Israel, then we should not overlook them as well. You know, you can go into Lebanon right now and there's a synagogue right across from the courthouse. So there's people that are from the nation of Israel that are in our community. What does a ministry to them look like? To live for Christ and to show them who their Messiah is. That's a big deal. And it's not being off-putting to say to them or show them God's kindness that you have found the reality of what they've been longing for. In fact, that's what God calls us to. And it concludes with, for if you were cut off from what is by nature a wild olive tree and were grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these who are natural be grafted into their own olive tree? Paul uses again this much more argument to show that Paul has, or God has already done the difficult thing. 
The difficult thing was taking the wild and putting it in the cultivated. That's the hard thing. What can stop God from taking the branches that belong in the tree to put them back in the tree? That's the easier thing that he can do that. So as we put this all together, I want to encourage you to see again the kindness of God in the salvation that he has given you. In our salvation. In the salvation of the Gentiles. We didn't do anything to receive such grace. Listen, remembering where you came from and how you came into such grace guards the heart from being spiritually entitled and arrogant. Preaching the gospel to yourself every day reminds you of God's magnificent grace on your behalf. You know what happens when you're spiritually entitled? Not only do you take God's grace for granted, but there are times and seasons in your life when you feel like you are due more than what God has given. You start looking around and saying, God, I've prayed these prayers. Why didn't you answer them? God, my brother or sister down the road has this. Why don't I have that? Preaching the gospel to ourselves keeps us on our knees where we need to be understanding we have already received everything that we need in Jesus Christ. Can I, can I just speak for a minute to our kids? Listen, for many of you, you've grown up in the church. Like, this is all you know. You've grown up going to church and hearing sermons and stories about God and and Jesus. Don't ever presume just because you come to church that you have what God wants to give. The only way that you can receive the blessings that God wants to pour out on you is to know him through his son, Jesus Christ. Sometimes we grow up in in church and and we've been to church for such a long time that we just think, well, I go to church. God has to bless. No, it doesn't work that way. God wants to know you personally. Romans eleven seventeen through 24 challenges that thinking to its core that we are spiritually entitled and we deserve everything that he can give. Listen, if we're going to boast about anything, we can boast. Oh boy, we can boast. In Galatians 6, 14, In Galatians 6.14, the Apostle Paul says that if he can boast in anything, he's going to boast in the cross of Jesus Christ. If there's any boasting, it is to get on the tippy toes of our feet with our hands extended, crying out in praise for Jesus Christ. Because it's only through the cross that the old nature can be put away. And it is only through Jesus that we find true victory. So we have a lot to be thankful for, right? You bet we do. So let's pray together and thank God.